This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are continuing our coverage of The Blue Lenses by Daphne du Maurier, originally published in 1959. This is the second part of a two-part episode. Last episode was our recap. This episode will be discussing the story. I do want to say before we get going that this story and a batch of other stories were commissioned to us by a very generous Patreon supporter. And this has been an amazing group of stories to read. So I just want to start by saying thank you so much to our Patreon supporter who commissioned these stories for us to do. Indeed. And as you said last time, Brandon, I mean, there's a real through line with these episodes, which is that the the stories were all written by women. And you foreshadowed that that is likely to be something that we take up in our year in review show, which if I've done my math correctly, is actually what's next after this episode. Though there might be one episode in between because math is not actually my strong suit. But <laughs> at any rate, I just want to say that is something I'm really looking forward to that, uh, you know, a big commission like this is uh, not just giving us a, a bunch of uh, you know new stories to read or extra stories to read that we might might not otherwise have taken a look at, but also is giving us a huge topic uh, for, you know, even future episodes. And that's really awesome. That's just so awesome. So I'm really, really grateful for that. But before we have that conversation in an episode or two, we need to dive deeper into this story. And I'm really excited for that. So Brandon, what's uh, what's first on the agenda here? Well, I want to start the episode by talking a little bit about Daphne du Maurier and the circumstances that led up to her writing the stories that comprise Breaking Point. That's the collection that we read The Blue Lenses in. Now, I know du Maurier primarily by reputation. My wife has read Rebecca. I have not. Uh, The Birds is one of the very few Hitchcock movies I've somehow never seen. Uh, I've watched Don't Look Now, which is everyone's favorite movie about a dwarf with progeria. Uh, But somehow, that's all I know of her. So I was really surprised in reading the introduction to this collection that she had a pretty tumultuous life. For instance, when talking about the blue lenses, Sally Bowman, who introduced this collection, points out that Dumarier's husband ended up in a nursing home, a care facility. After having a breakdown that was the result of alcoholism and stress, and that during this time or the recovery time between his uh, placement in the care facility and then coming home, uh, after which he died in 1965, uh, Du Maurier discovered that her husband had had a mistress. And this mistress actually called Du Maurier, telling her that she needs to leave her husband because she was the root of all of his problems. And Du Maurier was naturally heartbroken and embarrassed by this. I mean, she herself had carried on with affairs during her marriage to her husband and, and, and things like that. But Bowman indicates that Du Maurier was embarrassed because she felt called out. Du Maurier's need for isolation in order to write and her ignoring her husband in order to do so began to weigh heavily on her. Her husband died in the 1960s, as I said, and so during this whole time of recovery and grief, that's kind of when she started crafting these stories, even though they were published before her husband died, nearly being brought to a a kind of breaking point herself. And so I get the sense that Du Maurier is sort of combining her husband's circumstances, empathizing with his experience in this nursing home, and her own experiences about discovering her husband's affair, which she didn't think he was capable of, you know, while conceiving of and writing the blue lenses. I mean, we typically don't look at author biographies here in order to analyze the stories, but to me, this felt hard to ignore. So I wanted to bring it up at the top of the show and just get a quick reaction from you, Glenn, on on this information. 
Well, this is fascinating, Brandon. I didn't know any of this. As we've said before about you know the process for uh, doing our episodes is that uh, the person who is doing the recap generally is not allowed, though there's no actual you know like punishment, <laughs> but generally not allowed, highly discouraged from reading the introductions to the collections and looking at, at, at interviews and that sort of thing. So I uh, I didn't read this introduction by by Sally Bowman and knew nothing about Daphne du Maurier. I have some experience with her work, but it's only through the the lens, the literal lens of, of Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, Rebecca is actually my favorite Hitchcock film. I've never read the book. There was a recent adaptation of that film, or, or I don't know, not, not adaptation is a right, I guess another adaptation of that story or possibly a remake of the film with actors who I think are famous, but whose names I do not know. I did not really recognize them. <laughs> I watched half of that and thought I, I could just be watching the Hitchcock version of this. And so that's what I did instead, though perhaps other people liked that. I don't know. But uh, also the birds, of course, I have seen, though I did not realize that she had written that uh, short story that the the birds was based on. I didn't realize that was her until, I don't know, probably the fourth time or so that I'd seen the film. Maybe the name just hadn't meant that much to me before when I'd seen it in the, the opening title sequence. Uh, but I've seen both of those movies actually fairly recently, at least, you know, since we have begun doing this show, because as, uh, I don't know, real devoted listeners to this show may recall, I made a point of watching Psycho again when we covered the Robert Block story, Lucy Comes to Stay which I think was episode four of this show. Wow. This episode, right? This must be episode, I don't know, 120 something probably is what episode number this is, right? So it's been a long time. But when I got a copy of Psycho, I just bought some, you know, like box set of, of discs uh, to have. And that means I've got both of those films as well. And Elizabeth and I, uh, you know, the, 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 the heyday before becoming parents <laughs> made that a point of, of watching everything that was in there. And so we had watched The Birds together uh, recently. And I had forgotten just what an amazing amazing movie that is. And uh, I would really love to do that story. I, I, you know, and then also maybe actually watch the film again as well and talk about the adaptation. Of course, that story, not in the collection that we just got, the Breaking Point collection that we just got, but uh, uh, that should not stop us from covering the birds in the future. Yeah, I, I have been meaning to watch the birds and uh, I don't know why I keep putting it off. There's something, I don't know, about that last Hitchcock movie that you just kind of want to wait to watch, I guess. But I, I know I need to watch it. Um, yeah, the, the remake of Rebecca was done by a guy called uh, Ben Wheatley, who also did the film High Rise, the adaptation of the J.G. Ballard movie that that we watched together. That was, yeah, uh, at times I thought, a fairly great adaptation of the novel. But yeah. Um, Ben Wheatley's a, a director who uh, I really liked High Rise, and then I watched some of his other movies and didn't like them that much, so I didn't watch the adaptation of Rebecca, but I'm glad one of us watched half of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that was made by the same director who made High Rise. I, I have fond memories, actually, of the four of us watching that movie together <laughs> in your house in, in Fishtown, though I think the real takeaway was that Tom Hiddleston is a handsome, handsome man. Which Yeah, he looks good in a pair of slacks, you know? <laughs> that, that's, that's what you know about Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> I mean, that is what I know about Tom Hiddleston, I, I suppose. <laughs> All right. So you had presented some really interesting material about De Maurier's life, and I have derailed us to talk about Tom Hiddleston. Uh, though you added the pants part, but just to be, just to be clear, who's to blame? Just to be clear, who's to blame for that? But yeah, the. The hospital scene here really, and you know, the business with the trust fund, this really is elucidated by knowing this about de Maurier. You know, I don't know anything at all about her husband. I don't know about de Maurier's uh, life before becoming a writer, but certainly at this point, she's made a good living at, at writing. Uh, perhaps most of that, you know, financial reward coming from the, the film adaptations. Uh, but she's done well for herself financially and the discovery of infidelity and how much that hurts. And and feeling stupid, feeling incompetent for not having seen it, for not having seen your husband for who he really is. Perhaps, uh, you know, I don't know if she knew the mistress, if this mistress was known to her, but, you know, you could see where not seeing her for who she really was is certainly present in this story, right, with the, the character of Nurse Ansel. You could see how personal that is. And and to, to take something, uh, you know, emotions that she is having and to turn them into, uh, and to turn them them into a speculative fiction story uh, and taking this speculative element and uh, 
using that to render an emotional experience that she's having into something literal, but like, you know, in this kind of absurd, this absurd way, right? That my husband was actually a vulture. Uh, this other woman in my life was actually a snake the whole time. And I wish that, you know, I had been able to see that you know, literally manifest in their bodies, uh, that the, the rawness of that emotion is present in this story for sure. Yeah, as is the experience, I think, of caring for somebody who requires long-term care, especially somebody who, you know, by the introductor's lights, is somebody who Du Maurier has essentially ignored in order to pursue her own type of path. Um, and yeah, this introducer is really great because she doesn't paint anyone as like a victim or a good guy or a bad guy, but just sort of describes this type of relationship that Du Maurier had with her husband, where in order to write like this, the way Du Maurier writes, she has to be full of empathy. And I totally get her instinct to isolate in order to write, perhaps in part, of a way to process all the emotions, uh, the maybe emotional drain that she experiences when being around other people. Uh, she herself, as I mentioned, had affairs and flings with uh, both men and women. That's indicated by the uh, Sally Bowman as well. And just painting a picture of somebody who gets these emotional hits from people, uh, maybe to gain fulfillment or something like that, but not really. And then, needing to isolate, to process, but not really understanding the emotional intimacy needs of others and physical intimacy needs of others on a deeper level. Uh, I just thought it was really fascinating and a, and a way of looking through the story. Du Maurier, I think, is someone who's, it feels to me, based on this introduction, who uh, feels people's presence more deeply in their absence when she can think about them and formulate her ideas about them, rather than when she is having to perform socially, uh, that's something I relate to personally. So maybe I'm reading <laughs> into that a little bit uh, as well, but totally just that, that that kind of deep sense of empathy, thinking about her husband's experience maybe for the first time. And then Bowman brings up uh, a quote that Auden, W.H. Auden, the poet, um, used in his critique of some of Du Maurier's works where she likes to gender flip. She likes to take male experiences and put them in female characters and female experiences uh, and put them in male characters. And so this idea that she's taken her husband's experience of convalescence and put that into this female character while processing her own emotions, I think it's kind of a remarkable feat of both empathy, self-criticism, and uh, also crafting a great story. I mean, it just, it opens up the story in a new way that we're not going to talk about after this segment. Here. <laughs> um, but I just, I, I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't leave it hanging. That's an awesome insight from from Auden as well. Auden is uh, probably actually my favorite poet. I've read all of his poetry multiple times, but I, I, I know he also was spending a lot of time writing reviews for newspapers and doing some other journalism and, and so on to make a, a, a living, of course, as writers must. But I don't know that work very well, other than that he also wrote one of the, the really best uh, critiques, critical reviews of The Lord of the Rings. I, I feel like there must be a volume out there, right, collecting his reviews of other people's art. That seems like something I need to get a hold of. So I don't know. I'm just glad, glad you've reminded me of, of that. But yeah, that's a really amazing observation. I, I hadn't, you know, I don't know, as we said, we don't really know her work well enough to, to know sort of where the other places are where she does this. But I think the move here, that's really compelling, right? To see that she's working through not just her, her own feelings about the infidelity, but is also trying to think about uh, how her husband has felt in this marriage as well. That perhaps he has felt, right, like his wife is actually really chiefly married to her work, to her craft, uh, leaving him in, in the lurch, and then also thinking about what it is like to be in an institution, to be recovering from something and to be uh, to be cared for. That's a different experience of, of writing. Uh, writing as therapy than I think that that I have, where you know I am frequently writing about my my own experiences or processing my own experiences through writing, you know, putting them in, in some kind of a cult detective story or something, <laughs> something like that. But I'm not typically using those stories as ways to think about what the other people in my life are going through. And I, I don't know, maybe that says uh, something just about my my vanity, I guess. But uh, it seems like actually a really great type of way to use writing as therapy that uh, maybe we should all be using. 
Yeah, I, yeah, this story is just remarkable, and I really recommend our listeners to pick up this collection. Uh, th- th- you know, maybe I kind of buzzed through the best parts of the introduction, which is fairly short. Uh, but you know, I imagine myself reading the rest of these stories as well. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, regarding Auden, you know, there is the Dyer's Hand. I don't think his Lord of the Rings review is in there, so I haven't read it. But the Dyer's Hand is the book, if you're interested in critical reviewing at all, that you should read uh, if you like what we do on the show. I mean, it's informed my style of critical reviewing heavily, uh, and it's one of my favorite nonfiction books as well. All right, now that we've avoided talking about this story for Lord knows how long, we should (laughs) dig into it. In my mind, this story is really kind of focusing on two major ideas. It looks at the concept of seeing and also the concept of identity, in particular, the idea of social masks. And these concepts are really entangled and entwined in this story. So it's going to be hard for us, I think, to disentangle them clearly as we talk about them. But we're going to try. So what I really want to do in talking about this story is start with the concept of seeing here and focus on what Marta sees and what she wants to see. So as we said in our recap episode, Marta is a little skeptical of others and maybe even a little paranoid at the beginning of the story. And as we learn about her, we learn that she has money, a trust fund, and she's wary of people being too nice to her. And it's explicit that she sees other people as, you know, people or wants to see others as people again, you know, not as voices, not as anything other than an embodied person. But we learned that her seeing the faces of others isn't also seeing everything, that quote from the surgeon. When you get these lenses, you'll see everything. So firstly, Glenn, do you think that Marta's wealth informs her wariness of others? Or do you think there are more reasons for Marta's skepticism of other people and the way they present themselves to her or how she sees them? How we're going to read her experience here, I think, is dependent on well, what we think is actually happening in this story, what is actually happening with the 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 weird elements? I, you know, we can accept the the explanation that there's you know something's happening with some nerves, right? That are changing the way that she's perceiving what's around her, and you know what it's doing in the first instance is making her see pe- other people with animal heads, and then that's corrected. But it turns out that this you know other nerve that the doctor turned on uh, still makes her see her own. Uh, head as an animal head. And we definitely have been proceeding as if the specific expression of that, right? What specific animal this or that person appears as is revealing something about their nature, or it's certainly revealing something. But I think the question is, is it revealing something about their objective nature that is perhaps a revelation to Mrs. West? Or is what's happening here that she is actually rendering her suspicions that she already has or her uh, notions perhaps that are floating around in her subconscious are those being sub- rendered as an expression of her subjective judgment of people a subjective judgment that she perhaps has been unaware of until this moment i, I guess i i, I want to take your pulse on that brandon before i answer your other question Yeah, good. That was my third question to ask. So we'll just start there (laughs) instead. I have jumped again. (laughs) Yeah. And that, I mean, that question is really about Marta seeing. Is she seeing her own biases reflected back at her, her own unconscious thoughts, worries, and concerns? Or is she seeing this objective reality? Like, you know, the contrasting example might be uh, Nurse Ansel as a snake. Is she really a snake or is Marta paranoid about her husband laughing with a nurse in the hallway? Can we take that as a kind of bias or is what Marta seeing true in the same way that seeing the Aberdeen dog doctor means that the dog, that the doctor was really from Aberdeen and that Marta seeing traits she likes in that dog. And also there's some objective truth behind it as well. My sense is that for this story to work, Marta is seeing some kind of objective reality that she doesn't want to see. I think before you had uh, told me about the 
autobiographical material in this story, I would have said otherwise. Uh, that I would have I would have said that this is actually a story about her inherent paranoia and uh, suspicion of people around her being manifest here. Uh, but I think knowing what Demoria herself is working through, I think that your reading of this as being objective is 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 probably right. Uh, and in fact, actually, I would have used the business about Aberdeen as evidence for the subjectivity of this rather than the objectivity <laughs> of it. Because uh, look, if there's if this person's from Aberdeen, there's no way she doesn't already know that because that's a really recognizable accent. Even, you know, if we can account for uh, the fact that uh, that regional accents are more emphasized in uh, people of lower classes and that someone who's gone on to become a doctor is probably at least from a middle, if not an upper class. And that also, hey, uh, he's perhaps been in London for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years and lost some of that accent. I still think that would have been recognizable to her. Um, but yeah, knowing this now about her own autobiography, I think I've got to lean that way. Yeah, that that's definitely what I get from this story is that Marta's seeing everything. And there is a lot of unconscious thought here that's being reflected in this, but that doesn't mean it's not true. So, you know, the the fact that she has wealth, I think, has taught her to be wary of people who are extra kind to her because she doesn't know what they're after. So everything kind of commingles here, her unconscious biases, her what she thought was uh, just neutral interactions between a nurse who she has great rapport with and her husband becomes tinged with the sinister element after she thinks about how she feels manipulated into bringing Nurse Sansel home. And so I guess that leads to a question of whether or not you feel, Glenn, that Marta was aware that she wasn't seeing everything before the surgery. You know, does she prefer to live in the world of unconfirmed suspicions to seeing the truth? Is she more comfortable guessing at what people want and what they're really up to than knowing the truth about them? I have a feeling that she's been a bit delusional. Uh, we could we could think again, I guess, just about how the perception of people as animal heads is working in a in a, a, a tension between objectivity and subjectivity here. Because, you know, and, and what I mean by that is that I wonder, you know, if this happened to some other patient uh, who has never met Mr. West has never met Jim. Would that person see Jim as a vulture or is he appear as a vulture to Mrs. West, to his wife, because that's the role that he plays in her life. And she's been aware of that in sub, maybe some subconscious way, but has not wanted to perhaps uh, confront that herself. But now that is happening to her. I don't know that we'll ever you know, be able to get an answer on that. But I do. I do wonder about that. Yeah, and that is literally what is going to take up our uh, section on identity, is going to help us kind of maybe hone <laughs> in on exactly that question. But the real question at stake here is whether or not you feel that Marta prefers not seeing to seeing. Yeah, I think she prefers not seeing, right? I think, one, that's something that's revealed to us when she sees herself as a doe, right? Is that uh, this is innocence but a kind of uh, dangerous innocence right the sort of innocence where you're you're going to be victimized and the the head being bowed as if you know ready for slaughter i mean that's to me that's what that's expressing there is that she's someone who wants to be ignorant wants to be naive she would actually rather suffer but not see it coming uh than to see the truth around her and maybe take some action and do something about it. I I have the real feeling here, Brandon, that she's had a pretty disappointing life, and I think that this is even in the the background of the uh, you know the way that you're asking this question, right? Where you were framing this earlier, in terms of her having to be guarded around other people because she has inherited some kind of of wealth, and I I, I think that's right, and I. I think that that probably hints at some backstory where she's inherited wealth from her parents who perhaps died when she was actually fairly young. And so she's been surrounded much of her life by people who are using her to gain access to this wealth in, in, in some way. And that perhaps she's actually had some pretty bad experiences in looking for 
for love, looking for uh, a romantic partner, looking for someone to marry, and thought that perhaps she had actually finally found someone in Jim West who was not actually after her money, but actually cared for her. But that we're discovering here that somewhere deep down, she knew that the money at least was always a factor a little bit. And that maybe in the 10 years that they've been married, you know, something has something has changed there. Uh, certainly, what we see of Jim is that he is concerned about the trust, and also really would prefer to eat dinner that she's made for him at home. That's really all that we know about how he feels about her is that she has money and she cooks for him. Yeah, I'm not convinced that he would prefer to eat dinner that she makes for him at home rather than living the bachelor life that he's <laughs> yeah i'm not either <laughs> while she's in the club but we also see this uh weariness or skepticism even with nurse ansel where marta kind of sadly ruminates about the fact that maybe nurse ansel is treating other patients as well as she's being treated and that she's using her money to pay Nurse Ansel to take vacation time to come live with her for a week. So she's basically paying to have a friend for a week. So that sense of isolation, the the, the concept that money can buy relationships, the way Dumarier talks about even a prisoner, how Marta might think of herself as a prisoner regaining her sight back, as that's her go-to metaphor, all sort of leads us to believe, uh, I think, your conclusion, Glenn, that Marta has had a fairly disappointing life in terms of uh, having any sort of even normal intimacy with other people. Right. And again, I I have to go back and I I guess I'm just going to keep going back to the question of what's subjective versus what's objective, because I also, you know, the, the backstory that I'm inventing here, right, has this this tragic death of her parents at a young age. That might not be the actual backstory that Demoria had in mind at all, but I'm really envisioning a, a, a young person, maybe a very young child, but maybe you know an adolescent or something like that, who has been orphaned and has had inherited, but also has inherited this wealth, and that part of how uh, young. Marta West has dealt with this tragic loss of her parents is to put up barriers between herself and other people. And that that is is maybe part of a, a kind of feedback loop in suspecting that people don't really care about her, uh, that what they're interested in is the fact that she has this wealth that she's in inherited, uh, you know, that maybe she's suspicious of that because she's put up these barriers to intimacy, but then having those suspicions also create her to reinforce those barriers in intimacy. And then, you know, that loop just kind of repeats. Yeah, that's certainly the case. And I think we'll really be able to to hone in on the way uh, social roles function and expectations when we talk about identity, uh, the way identity functions in this story. But the, the last thing I want to talk about with this subject of seeing is about the ape. You know, mostly the animals make sense in this story. They maybe exemplify character traits of the people that Marta sees, whether that's objective, as we're suggesting, or more subjective, uh, rooted in unconscious bias. Yeah, but the iffy animal person that Marta sees is the one that stops her from her total escape. It's the ape. And first, I'll read what is actually written here about this uh, cab driver. She turned swiftly to the left and, seeing a taxi at the further end, called and raised her hand. The taxi slowed and waited. When she came to the door, she saw that the driver had a squat, black face of an ape. The ape grinned. Some instinct warned her not to take the taxi. I'm sorry, she said. I made a mistake. The grin vanished from the face of the ape. Make up your mind, lady, he shouted, and let in his clutch and swerved away. So it's super easy for us to race code this person. You know, apes have always been race coded. As as far as I know, you know, in Europe for a long time, if I recall correctly, they were sometimes coded as Irish. Obviously, the U.S. has a very different history of using apes in propaganda and civil iconography. But we only get the sense, based on what I just read, that some it's some other thing about this ape cab driver that frightened Marta. Something that might lead us to believe that it's a subjective interpretation of these 
animal presentations that Marta's experiencing. There's nothing concrete. It's just some instinct. So, Glenn, what do you think is going on here? You know, what did Marta see? This does get back, as I've said, to the question of unconscious bias versus objective reality. Yeah, something that's, I think, worth noting here is that, you know, the word she uses is ape. And so that that could refer to a, a number of, of specific species that in our minds all have actually rather unique qualities, right? So uh, when you're talking about uh, Irish people being depicted as apes, ape is often the word that's used for that, but the image that's frequently drawn is of an orangutan for example. Uh, but the description here is clearly of a gorilla, which also is a, a type of, of ape. I suppose I, I could be persuaded it's of a chimpanzee, but I think this is gorilla is actually what she has in mind. Also, ape and gorilla are frequently uh, used as uh, as synonyms for each other, even though that's that's not right. Uh, the animal lover in me <laughs> must must insist here on, on taxonomical accuracy here. Right. But yeah, and I think for us, again, as Americans, gorilla person being represented as gorilla is definitely uh, coded as as uh, racial depictions. And in fact, we've talked about that on this show before. We talked about this uh, with, with Robert E. Howard. Uh, at the very least, I think it's perhaps come up in some other ways. But I don't know that that uh, type of, of code exists in the UK or exists in the UK in the 1950s. I just don't know the answer to that. But I think if I had to guess, I would guess not. And to me, this read as as class rather than as as race uh, that we're seeing gorilla here uh, as uh, standing in for an uncouthness that is the result of uh, lack of education and uh, and and lack of of proper class manners. Uh, that's my sense. Yeah. civility, right? I mean, that's kind of right. the, my 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 theme word for this story, here. <laughs> and and it's it's fascinating to me because I I was so confused by this image, not just because of the cultural baggage that it has for us, as I've said, but also because apes would be the closest to to people, to humans in this world of animal heads that Marta has stepped into. And my feeling would be uh, maybe a sense of, of comfort, right, by this uh, nearly human person, rather than an instinct to ignore them or avoid them. And I, I could see this story going in a whole different direction where the cab driver, through his uncouthness, incivility, or or whatever, um, is the one who listens to Marta, maybe takes her back home. His family is full of wonderful animals, maybe, you know, who, who Mar that Marta <laughs> likes or isn't wary of. And then we end up, you know, maybe with the plot of Overboard or something like that. But, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I kind of was very confused by this image. So I, I just have to ask, what do you think it was in her instinct that she saw that warded her away from, from getting in this cab? Yeah, isn't isn't this setup uh, also the exact plot of a, an episode of Misfits? <laughs> it sure is. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which is that's a show that I, I would love for somewhere on the network some 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 combination of hosts to cover an episode or two of that uh, really phenomenal show. Uh, yeah, but to to get to the spirit of your question here, I, it is interesting that the thing that repulses her the most is actually the animal that is most closely related to to humans, and I really appreciate the way that you're you're presenting this picture of, you know, a cab driver, a cabbie as being perceived as something that is human like shares a lot of qualities with a uh, human uh, and but really where the distinctions would be are in matters of of intellect and boy that is a classist also of course a potentially racist uh, type of view of other people right that's that's a, about as distilled as that type of thinking can get definitely I absolutely believe that Mrs. West would have that type of thinking that type of an opinion uh, about a cabbie and it is super Super interesting that that is actually a, a, a very uncomfortable, very frightening uh, image for her. But of course, also the, the contrast up until this point, if we set aside Jim and Nurse Ansel, she's otherwise actually seen cats and dogs, so pets, uh, and then 
farm animals, right? That's what she's seen. So everyone else so far has appeared as animals that are not wild, but that are domestic and that are, uh, you know, animals that she has actually encountered in her real life at some, some point, right? And not afraid of, but, you know, seeing a gorilla... <laughs> That's actually pretty scary. Like if I saw a gorilla, not in a zoo context, uh, you know, in the wild, hiking somewhere, which would be an amazing hike to be going on and saw a gorilla, I would have some trepidation. And I definitely would if I, you know, saw one driving a cab. Right. So I think I can I can also just appreciate that on a kind of horror story level as well, where there's been that that contrast so far. And. You know, this is not the incident that causes her to lose consciousness. That is actually being surrounded by these carrion animals. Lots of vultures, jackals, uh, and and dogs, right, is what actually does cause her to, to, to lose consciousness, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. I'm not suggesting she lost consciousness because of uh, her instinct not to get in the cab. I'm saying that she lost the opportunity to escape into a new life, uh, to see things truly. And it was this thing that stopped her from getting away. And that's just a very, because the story kind of hinges on this moment, it, it, it's, it, it feels so strange to me to have this confluence of events really stop Marta from getting away. The instinct that, as you're suggesting, a class issue, that she might actually have to change her status, that she wouldn't lose her money. Um, that she might have to live in a different type of society or go into that world to escape what's happening to her. That's what stops her from making any significant changes in her life. And I, I find it such a fascinating moment in the story. And I hope our listeners uh, have kind of see more fruit on the tree than, than we've been able to discuss here. Something that's going on in in this scene or or preceding this scene too, though, is that she is running through in her mind, you know, where could I go? And, you know, she has, there there are some options, although not very many good ones. There definitely is a picture of uh, Marta West as not having a lot of friends, of being isolated. In fact, she's more thinking about uh, relatives. Uh, there's some cousins she thinks of, but I also think that, that that part of her reaction there is that she doesn't want to show up at her cousin's house and see what her cousin looks like, what what animal head her cousin has. I think she does not want to know that, right? So she doesn't really know where to go, and I think that's part of the panic here. Is like she doesn't know what she would tell the cabbie when she gets into the the car, right? And so she just closes the door and just tries to run off into the night, and you know just only makes it a a few blocks there that she doesn't have a real plan she thought through i guess pretty well actually how to escape there's you know there's all this great drama around the sneaking out of the hospital but she didn't know what she was going to do once she made it out there right and her desire to not know is actually what drives her character throughout this story and i think that Dumouriez does an absolutely masterful job of giving the reader that tension of wanting to know and not knowing. I think something that she probably experienced uh, when that mistress called her, you know, that did did she want to know that? Could she have just gone on in ignorance? But now that she knows, she has to know. And what? Where do you go? What do you do with that information? What el- What else are people hiding from you? Well, let's move on from talking about seeing to talking about identity. And as I've predicted, we've entangled this uh, in quite a, way, quite a way that's difficult to entangle. But uh, now's a good time to pause and kind of define what I'm thinking about in terms of guiding us into thinking about how identity is functioning in this story. I've been reading a philosophy book called You and Your Profile, which sounds like uh, making a Facebook account for dummies book. It's not... Uh, I've been reading it kind of slowly, even though it's not a difficult book at all. And this book is about, uh, in part, um, these different modes of identity formation that have been present throughout history. And the occasion for writing this book is really looking at how we form identities today in light of building profiles on the internet. Uh, And so, the author really describes these two other modes. The internet age identity formation mode he calls profilicity, um, where we interact with each other through this mode of second-order observation. 
if you're excited by this, I recommend the book. Um, but the past two ones, past two modes of identity that he's describing, I think we're pretty familiar with. Um, and they're both modes that were very big in the past, which you know would be Du Maurier's present. So the first mode of identity formation that this author's looking at is something he that he calls sincerity, and he's relying on works from other philosophers to use this terminology. And sincerity, or being sincere, relies on a kind of genuine conformity to social roles and duties um, that we might take up as seeing ourselves as a member in a family or having a role in our community or in our work environment. The second mode that he looks at is authenticity, which is about discovering your true self, what you're like beneath those social masks of sincerity and social roles we're told to perform, and being instead asked to perform one's creativity, one's differences from others by inviting people to see us as we, quote, really are, what's inside of us. Now, authenticity really bloomed in the second half of the 20th century as a normal mode of identity formation. I think it's what most of us who are millennials or Gen X or older are familiar with. And this story really walks a line, I think, between both sincerity and authenticity as a kind of conflict. There's what the characters of the blue lenses are expected to be in their social and work roles, and then what they are truly revealed to be through a special type of seeing. So, Glenn, based on that very short pressy, what examples of this kind of sincerity or sincere identity do you see present in this story? Yeah, there are great examples here. I mean, I think the nurses, of course, are the, the first characters who are described. But I think for me, Jim West is probably the the, the best representative of, of these two different modes here where uh, we really only meet him on the telephone, right? We meet him on the telephone before he ever shows up, which is a, a great technique for the, the revelation of the, the vulture head, of course, right? But we see him... Uh, as a person who's got some kind of uh, important job where he has a, a managerial role and has responsibilities. Uh, we learn that he's, uh, you know, go after work consulting with the, the lawyers, which is is framed by him, at least as, you know, taking care of the family, taking care of their, you know, family unit, the two of them, their, their marriage. And we see him dutifully, you know, visiting the hospital every day and uh, bringing flowers. And, and also, of course, we learn that he's got a club that he goes to, right? Someplace where he would be known within a community of other uh, professionals of his class and be establishing networking type relationships there that, eh, you know, can sometimes bleed into genuine friendships, but are largely actually about business relationships, right? And that all seems like sincerity there, right? That he's performing these identities based on what are the roles that are expected of him, right? Being who he's supposed to be at work, uh, extending that into a social realm after work, uh, performing his identity as uh, the husband of, of this woman in the hospital, dealing with the lawyers and so on. But then we see his authenticity, right? As actually someone who is trying to satiate his appetite by picking over a corpse. Right. Yeah. So that's a really great example. You did a great job, I think, of, uh, first of all, even understanding what I said. So I thank you for that. But then <laughs> also describing the way this functions for Jim. And and yeah, this story, as I said, is this: these roles are creating friction. The, the change to authenticity, the fear of people revealing themselves or being their you know, quote unquote, true selves in light of their roles. And, and you know, sincerity also, I think, com indicates this idea that uh, you, you want to be the roles that you're doing. They give you an organization to your life. You don't have to have uh, relationships with people beyond your social circles. That's very kind of a small world. And Marta, I think, is imprisoned in a sense by this sincerity. That's kind of the example I see in this story. The, the nurses are a great example, but we really only see them at work, uh, with the exception of, of Nurse Ansel. But Marta recognizes the social pressures that she has to be civil, even after a painful operation, to um, 
act in a certain way that's in accordance with her role maybe as both a socialite and a wealthy woman and feeling that she can't express her fears and disappointment even in a medical environment when faced with uh, complication uh, due to the surgery. And so we see that she's kind of trapped by those that sincere identity role that she feels connected to what what modes of authenticity do you see maybe not just the man animal heads but the the people kind of um wanting to be their you know quote unquote true selves that's a really interesting question right to to try to to disentangle the animal heads from that i i I guess the doctors perhaps might be a place where we we see this, we get some talk about, uh, you know, from the, the, the one doctor who's praising the, the job that the surgeon has done, with the, you know, activating this other nerve that he found in your eye that, you know, he realized had never been on at all, never been active, and he got it on, that there's this awe by, you know, this one doctor who's admiring the work of, of, of the, this, other, this other surgeon here, also maybe a little bit of, of envy there, right? To me, that that had some authenticity, right? Of seeing the doctors as people who are motivated by a sense of accomplishment and achievement, uh, perhaps maybe especially relative to, to other people. Uh, there's, you know, this line here about he's made medical history or, you know, Mrs. West has, you know, is going to enter the annals of medical history here because she's been the patient for this really successful surgery that's never been done before, right? So that's maybe a place where we are seeing some authenticity from from the doctors there. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And and I also see I think with the with the cab driver as well. Not that the cab driver is somebody who is you know wishing they were some doing something other than cab driving or or something like that, but that 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 if she were to call that cab, that cab driver might look a little brutish at the end of the day. They might speak harshly. There's no real social mask there. Maybe that's why they're close to so close to being a human. The same way that that doctor that uh, is really kind of the good guy in the story is an Aberdeen Terrier. And hey, he's from Aberdeen. And, you know, we've talked about this in the past. We don't want to go to doctors who know deep down they're the world's greatest guitar player, but they got stuck into (laughs) doing doctoring because their parents demanded it of them and they don't like it. And if they could only be at home practicing guitar, like you want a doctor who's authentically a doctor as much as they're sincerely a doctor, right? Uh, That's kind of the ideal doctor. So yeah, that's a great point as well. And then once we get into the animal heads, I think we see that Dumarier might be expressing some skepticism about a social move towards authenticity as identity formation, especially if we're considering this story through the eyes of Marta. You know, Dumarier is kind of asking the questions of like, is what's deep inside of us, if what's waiting to come out, if only we let it, or if other people, if we didn't have the restrictions of our social roles, simply a good? Is it the kind of personal genius, the guiding spirit that Emerson talks about that would always allow us to flourish and be great in society? Or is this authenticity just a crude violation of civility and sincerity, a betrayal of the relationships that we form through our social interactions? Well, certainly, if we're thinking about this story in terms of that dichotomy, I mean, the horror of this story is the the breakdown of the sincerity model and, you know, the sort of pushing in, the barging in of the authenticity model where, like, it's 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 better to not know what's going on deep inside other people, that we're all better off if all we see is the the veneer, the, the facade, right? We're seeing the faces that people want us to, to, to see in their roles, right? What role they're performing in the community or... Uh, in this uh, this particular relationship, that's better than seeing who people really are. And I think it's skeptical of authenticity as well, then, in a, in a way that the type of authenticity that, you know, speaking as a, a Gen Xer, right, the, the type of authenticity that uh, uh, my peers, as certainly as adolescents, you know, were, were trying to broadcast was not 
I'm really just looking for uh, a, a rich romantic partner who I can uh, then team up with a nurse to murder and take her money. Like that was not the type of authenticity we were talking about broadcasting <laughs> right, right. to the world. It was, you know, um, wearing a, a tie for a belt and wearing bowling shoes and painting one of my fingernails uh, orange. Um, that was what passed for authenticity, you know, as an right. as an adolescent. It was, you know, letting your uh, your creativity show, right? Not conforming to you. Uh, the types of, uh, you know, uh, socially acceptable clothing. Um, I had really weird hair as as well. I mean, which now, you know, I regret that I'm just unable to grow any type of hair at this point, <laughs> right? But that's what we meant by authenticity, by being who we really are compared to, you know, putting on a suit and going to work the way that our, our parents did. Um, maybe that is a kind of fake authenticity though, right? Because I think what Demoria is showing here is like a, re- a type of real authenticity, right? Something about your actual nature, uh, not just something about uh, the things that you like in the world. Right. It's not just accessorizing, right? Authenticity uh, right. <laughs> can't just be accessorizing, even though in the 80s and 90s, that that's what it meant. Uh, but yeah, that kind of leads us back to this this question of uh, whether this is objectively rooted or biased, whether what Marta sees is either of those, because a true type of authenticity is conformity in a sense, as we've talked about, but also people would see different sides of us, different people as we know when we have genuinely intimate relationships with other people or or relation when we have uh, genuine relationships with other people or authentic relationships with other people bring out different sides of us. And so it, it brings us back to your question you said earlier, if, you know, whether if other people had this operation and Marta and Jim went to a dinner party, they would see Jim as a vulture and Marta as a doe, or whether they'd see Jim as something else, some other side of him that enjoys the work he's doing, that enjoys the social clubs and, and things like that. You know, he might be more of a pack dog or something along those lines. And, you know, these questions are kind of threaded throughout the story and even brought up in the story in a certain way when we know other people have gotten this operation, what did they see? That's the first question I I asked to myself when I was reading the story. What did they see? Did they see the same things that Marta sees? Is she going to go out and do some investigation? Uh, You know, that doesn't come up in the story, but I think the story raises those questions by including the other surgeries in the story. Just a side question too, something that I, I had thought about uh, that we just didn't really talk about in the recap at all, though, is this this warning about, you know, don't touch your eyes is you'll you'll go blind if you do. I had a patient once who did exactly that. I read into that, that the, that patient knew exactly what he was doing, that he was experiencing something similar to what Mrs. West is going through in this story and did not want, did not want that and and blinded himself, essentially. Yeah, that's exactly what I read. That moment of horror where he was like scratching, trying to gouge the lenses out because he didn't want to see anymore what he was seeing. And nobody's listening to these people for for some horrible reason. This hospital just doesn't listen to its patients because, I don't know, civil interactions with nurses is more important than medical care. And, and that kind of leads me to the last question I want to ask you, which is kind of the... Uh, the J.B. Fletcher question, the Murder, <laughs> She Wrote question, uh, which is a show that, you know, as I'm thinking about these types of identity formations, at least until J. Michael Straczynski takes over, is a show about why civility matters. But why is civility so important to Marta? Well, I think for her, it's really kind of all she has. Uh, I talked earlier about th- this backstory that I'm, you know, inventing, but but uh, I'm trying to surmise right from the story that something has happened that has you know, left her as the inheritor of some wealth, uh, presumably from her parents. And I'm just stipulating that this is uh, something that was a traumatic experience for her that has left her with real barriers to creating bonds of intimacy with other people. And so for her, all she has is civility. All she has is this uh, sincerity mode. That's how she can relate to people. She can relate to people through their roles, uh, through their uh, the functions that they perform in society, and the extent to which they are embracing those roles and functions and doing their best to perform them. Because she really can't 
engage with someone on in the mode of authenticity because that's also a type of intimacy that she's just not really prepared for. It's actually a type of intimacy that I think really scares her, really frightens her. Yeah, I think the civility or sincerity allow Marta to believe that everyone is basically a good person and good people can make mistakes and still be good people. This is like every fifth episode of Murder, She Wrote, where like <laughs> an old college roommate turns out to be a murderer, but they're like a good person who made a mistake. And they still follow all the social codes while Jessica Fletcher's visiting. They're perfect hostesses. They're pretty good to their family until they kill their husband. You know, all this stuff kind of going on that allows, you know, in this case, in, in this story, that, that type of thinking allows Marta to think of people as inherently good because they're fulfilling their roles. And if they cross it, they know they've crossed a, a boundary. They know they've violated something. You know, it's not just like love. Romantic love is the easiest way, I think, for us to kind of think about uh, the drives of authenticity or the expression of that, that like anything is, we can do it, we can cross any boundary, do any line, and we can explain it away by saying we were in love. That you you know, in this type of society, you need to be discreet if you're having an affair. And Nurse Ansel and Jim are kind of maybe not quite, they're kind of ready to stop being discreet. And that's a huge violation. But that's just a mistake people make. You know, Marta's put Jim through a hard time, blah, blah, blah. Instead, seeing this other side of them, that they are really a snake or a vulture. They, 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 they have no care for Marta. They don't care about these social rules or violating them. I don't think that's something that Marta can even comprehend a person thinking or enacting upon. And this, the results of this surgery here have, have shattered that illusion for her, right? And it's that shattering of the illusion that is the, the real horror from her perspective in this story. Before we wrap things up, Brandon, I, I just want to play a little lighthearted game here on the, the sort of gimmick, right, of this, uh, of this story and ask what you think people would see if they were going to see you as an animal head. And, uh, you know, I'll answer the question, too. <laughs> you know? I don't know, man. Probably some type of toxic zombie, I suspect, with <laughs> melting skin. I, don't, I have no idea. Who knows? <laughs> You know, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? If that's the, <laughs> that's the that's the game of uh, that's that's what Marta sees. But uh, I don't know on the on the positive side. Oh, definitely not a dog. I don't know. Maybe some kind of uh, jungle cat. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> yeah. So I, I was thinking about this really, you know, for the last few days. And to be honest, like I, looking at the people around me and trying to to play this game, which actually I think could be a fun game, though also feelings easily uh, easily hurt in a game like this. But honestly, I actually had trouble really thinking about other people and found it much easier to think about me, but also not in a like putting a good face on it kind of way, but in a sort of what would I really be afraid to see in this mirror or maybe not afraid, but bothered by, ashamed of. And I think for me, uh, it would be that I'm going to see like a, a spider monkey. Uh, you know, just this kind of uh, uh, inconstant, easily distracted, flittering, chattering thing that's just goofing off all the time and, you know, uh, seems to be having a lot of fun, but probably shouldn't be trusted with anything serious, right? Like that's, yeah. I think, the nightmare uh, for me. That would be the sort of self-critical thing that I would see there. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think we're on the same page there. It's hard to, it's hard to imagine you know, I think if 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 people had sight like this, uh, I'd settle for cabbie ape. You know, yeah, right? I mean, I think that's the aspiration. That cabbie might be the happiest person in this story, right? Because he's right. he's the one who. Yeah, there's a thing about cabbies, right? That cabbies, uh, it's a business that relies entirely on attracting customers, but it's also <laughs> as you know, on, on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, at least in London and New York, right? Has this uh, uh, this culture of of telling those same potential customers that they're terrible people and they're bothering you, right? Yeah, like that's, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we see here. That's a real authenticity, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, totally. Well, I think on that fun note... Uh that's going to do it for this episode. I think if you want to share your animal with us and uh, you think it's a great animal, uh, maybe do some reflection there, uh, but then don't share the <laughs> terrible animal with us as I was forced to do. So yeah, that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. 
And I'm Glenn McDormand. It's possible that we've actually just invented a new type of therapy, you know, animal head Maybe. therapy. Something. I think Young was there a little while ago. But, <laughs> well, uh... that's probably true. <laughs> All right. Well, if you would like to share with us what you think you would see in the mirror in this situation or anything else, you know, about this story or anything else we've ever covered on the network, hey, you can do that at the forum or on our subreddit. And that forum can be found at claytemplemedia.com. Once again, I want to say thank you so much to the the listener and Patreon supporter who commissioned not just these two episodes on this story, but these four other episodes as well, and also other episodes in the past. These continued acts of, of, of generosity mean so much to us, and they've also gotten us to cover just some really, really phenomenal stories, and we're so grateful, so appreciative of that. Yeah, thank you so much. As we said, this batch of stories has been a real pleasure to cover. And, you know, this is, I don't quite know the episode they're airing in, uh, but this is the last one we've read. And it was just a remarkably good series of stories and ended for me on a really high note. And one of the things, of course, right, that we do truly love about getting these commissions is that it's an opportunity for listeners to share with us stories that they love or that have had some other type of impact on them. And almost always, right, commission episodes are introducing us to a writer that uh, is perhaps totally new to us or at least someone we haven't covered before. And that's just such an awesome thing to do. And we would love for other listeners to you know, take advantage of the 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 commission procedures that we've got here. So if there is something that you would like us to, to cover for you, you can do that by visiting the website at claytemplemedia.com. You can uh, contact us via email, which is just claytemplemedia at gmail.com. You can find us on social media as well, Twitter, Reddit. You can message us there. We really do love doing these. So if you've got something in mind, we hope we'll hear from you. And, uh, yeah, next time we're going to be back with something. Uh, the odds are it is actually the year in review show for 2022, but it might not be. <laughs> but as I say at the end of these commissioned episodes, you can always find out what's next by visiting the Elder Sign page at claytemplemedia.com, where we've got a schedule of upcoming episodes. And so, until whatever is next, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs> <laughs>